We're going to transition now to the next point in our service, and we're going to be at a point in our service where we actually open the Word of God together and hear what it has to say. And so to read for us today is Erica. Our reading today is from Proverbs 14, verses 20, 21, and 31. The poor is disliked, even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have a distinct memory from my undergraduate at the University of Western Ontario. I was in my second year, and I was involved with a campus Bible study. That was conveniently for me, it was meeting in my residence. And we were going through the New Testament epistle of James. Now, I'd grown up in the church, and um, I was familiar with the Bible, but I'd never read through James before. And I have a distinct memory of sitting down in that group, reading through James chapter 2, and hearing these words for the first time. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. My head exploded. (laughs) I I knew the New Testament well enough to say, that doesn't sound right. Um, I know elsewhere the Apostle Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so now I had this weird sort of existential crisis going on because there was an apparent contradiction in the New Testament. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not a result of works. So I looked up from my Bible, looked at the group and said, it's pretty obvious to me, James is wrong and this shouldn't be in the Bible. (laughs) Um, Now, lest you be tempted to mock 19-year-old Graham, I will tell you that others have struggled with this apparent contradiction as well. The great 16th century theologian and reformer, Martin Luther, famously disliked the epistle of James. He called it the epistle of straw, which I think is an awesome trash talk. And when he translated the Bible into German, do you know what he did? He put James as the last book in the Bible, (laughs) which is like super petty and hilarious in my mind. But this apparent contradiction has perplexed people throughout the years. But one of the guys in my group, he helpfully explained to me, he said, you know, it's a real problem if you take a single sentence from the Bible and try to read it as if the rest of the Bible didn't exist. And so when you're reading the Bible and you hear a phrase like this, you need to read it in light of Paul, but you also need to read Paul in light of James. And when we do that, what we see is that faith is kind of like a tree. And we know that the tree is alive or dead based on whether or not it's producing fruit or good works. We know the tree is alive or dead based on its fruit. And the three Proverbs that we have read for us today, they're telling us that one of the fruit which indicates the health of our spiritual life is how we love our poor neighbor. 
One of the fruit that indicates the health of our spiritual life is how we love our poor neighbor. Or to put it in a different way, if we say that we have faith, but we dislike, despise, or oppress our poor neighbor, we need to do a serious heart check. Now, what did the author of Proverbs have in mind when he used the word poor? If you're like me, you heard the scripture read this morning, and immediately there was an image that came into your mind of a particular type of person or a particular type of interaction, you know, and that's what it looks like to love our poor neighbor. What did the author mean? Well, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm very grateful that we have a number of Hebrew scholars on staff at Grace Toronto. Tarek is one of them, and my brother Jeff is is one of the others. And Tarek and Jeff helped me to see that in our English Bible, the word poor appears three times, right? Once in each of our three Proverbs. But in the original Hebrew, there's three different words that are used, and each of which has a different nuance to it. So let's look at those. The first in, um, in verse 20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor. The word for poor here is um, rush, rush. And this word means those that have been dispossessed. Dispossessed from their land, dispossessed from their citizenship, dispossessed from their place in society. They have no stakehold. They have no voice. They've become a non-person. So who do we think of today when we think about the dispossessed? Well, refugees and immigrants that come to Canada with no social supports. We think of the orphan and the widow, people that have been dispossessed of their families. And we think about the homeless, those that have been dispossessed from their homes. In our second proverb, the word poor, blessed is he who is generous to the poor, the word here is oni. This is the number one most used Hebrew word for the poor in the Old Testament. And this word means those that have entered poverty because they've been victimized, afflicted, traumatized. It's not a result of their poor decision-making. It's a result of being traumatized and being left to pick up the pieces that are left behind. So who does that bring to mind for us? Well, it'd be children who grew up in homes where there's domestic abuse and they're struggling to function in society. It'd be partners who are experiencing domestic abuse at home. It would be single parents who have been abandoned by their spouse and they're left to fend for themselves and their family. These are the oni. And lastly, in our third um, proverb, he who is generous to the poor honors God, honors his maker. The word used here is dal. And the dal are those that are poor because they are frail, sickly, and weak. And so who would be the biblical dal? Well, today we think of those that have psychiatric disorders and are unable to function in society. We think about those elderly folks that are in long-term care facilities. We think about the disabled. In the Bible, we might think of the story of the woman with a discharge of blood. She'd spent all her money and only became sicker. And so when we hear the call of these Proverbs to love our poor neighbor, yes, we should absolutely think about the interaction on the street with our homeless neighbor. Absolutely, that's in the scope of these Proverbs. But it's actually more expansive than that. It's also about loving our refugee neighbor. 
It's about loving our orphaned neighbor, loving our single parent neighbor or our elderly neighbor. The Bible calls us to love the dispossessed, the victimized, and the frail. And so with that definition underway, let's look at our first proverb for today in verse 20. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Just to be clear, the Bible is not endorsing this behavior. It's rather describing the typical state of affairs, that the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And we see that this has been an issue all throughout history. Going back to the epistle James, which I referenced at the beginning, James warns the church about showing partiality to people. James presents sort of a hypothetical scenario where two people enter the church. The one is wearing rich, expensive clothing. They have jewels and um, all kinds of jewelry to indicate they're a person of means and power. And a second person walks in wearing shabby clothes. To the church, James says, it's a problem if you show preference to the wealthy person, saying, oh, come and sit in this seat of honor. And saying to the poor person, you go stand over there. So James warns the church about showing partiality. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. This is not just a problem in the ancient world. It's a problem for us today, isn't it? I think about what happened in our long-term care facilities over the past 18 months during COVID and the tragedy that befell our senior population. Now, I'm sure that there's blame that can be pointed a hundred different directions about that, but the fact is, if the senior citizens who were living and dying in long-term care, if they were like the group of people in this room with the type of power and wealth and voice that we have, they would not have been abandoned to die like animals. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. I think about the story shared by one of our members at Grace Toronto. Um, her name is Rosemary, and she works, as a long, uh, she works as a spiritual care practitioner at one of the hospitals in Toronto. And at a recent Grace Toronto event, Rosemary shared the story um, about a patient she was working with. It was a young man who had recently become paralyzed and had been in rehab for a number of weeks, learning to adjust to his new reality. And this young man lamented to Rosemary. He said, none of my friends have reached out to me since I came here. He was easy to love when he was able-bodied. And yet, now that he had a disability, none of his so-called friends had reached out to him. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich have many friends. We can think about the eternal problem in the city of Toronto of where to put subsidized housing, where to put homeless shelters. Our city, to me anyway, sounds so woke on so many issues, but the minute that someone hears a homeless shelter is being built in their community, not in my backyard, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And so our first proverb speaks about the way that things are. And our second proverb calls us to do better, to live differently. Let's look at our second proverb, verse 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. What does it mean to be generous to the poor? Well, what did it mean in this context? I, I think it's helpful to investigate the kind of culture 
that the author of Proverbs was living in. So let's consider the laws of ancient Israel, because God had given the Israelites a number of laws intended to protect the poor and to break cycles of systemic poverty. So some of these laws would include the gleaning laws. So in the gleaning laws, landowners, people who owned farms or vineyards, olive orchards, they were told that at harvest time, they weren't to just clear cut the land. Instead, they were supposed to leave the edges of their farm, their vineyard, their orchard. They were supposed to leave those edges unharvested so that the poor could come and gather what they needed. A couple interesting principles from that. The first is it requires generosity from the farmers, doesn't it? They don't get a 100% return on their harvest. At the same time, this isn't just a, a handout to the poor. They're invited into the dignity of work, using their own hands to provide for themselves. It's also worth noting that God doesn't just provide the bare minimum for the poor. He also provides olives and grapes, which in that culture would be used to make wine and oil, luxury items. A second law in ancient Israel was that people were not supposed to collect interest when they made loans. They were supposed to give loans interest-free. Now, for those of you that are in business or know economics, you know that that requires generosity on the part of the lender, doesn't it? Because the law of inflation means they're going to lose money if they're not earning interest. At the same time, this isn't a handout to the poor. They're expected to be able to steward those resources and to repay the loan at some point. A third law of ancient Israel they could not permanently sell their land. Isn't that interesting? Now, it's important to remember this was an uh, agrarian society where if someone was cut off from the land, they were cut off from the means of production and they would die. And so God told the Israelites that instead of selling their land, they could lease it for a period of up to 50 years. And at the end of the lease, the land would go back to its original owners. And so this is one of the ways God had set up a structure to break systemic poverty, ensuring that every Israelite continued to have access to the land. Israelites were to be treated, rich and poor, treated equally under the law. That doesn't sound revolutionary to us today, but in the ancient world, it wasn't all that common. And lastly, there was the year of Jubilee. On the year of Jubilee, land was to be returned and any unpaid debts were utterly forgiven. So when we look at these ancient laws, what does it mean to be generous to the poor? Well, we see that generosity was required on the part of the community, from the farmers, from the lenders. And we see at the same time that these weren't empty handouts. This wasn't helping that hurts. But instead, the poor were given dignity and control over their own future and providing for themselves. Now, what does it look like today? to be generous to the poor? Well, I would say look around this room. Think about the community at Grace Toronto. There are many people in this room who are medical professionals, social workers, counselors. You have invested years of study and you invest your day-to-day -day job as an act of generosity towards the dispossessed, the victimized, and the frail. And God calls you blessed. 
Your vocation is a blessing and an act of generosity, and God calls you blessed. I know there are others of us, we don't work in fields like that. I don't, myself. But there are many people here who do really well at business. You make good money, and you steward it well. You're generous to charities. You're generous to the diaconate of the church. You're generous to the biblical poor, and God calls you blessed. There are families here who have fostered and adopted children, taken in the orphan. God calls you blessed. There are folks here that have their eyes open for a biblically poor neighbor, the widow, an elderly person, single parent, and you do little acts of kindness like shoveling their driveway, taking out their garbage for them. God calls you blessed. If you're like me, you read these Proverbs about loving our poor neighbor, and instantly you think of all the ways you're not doing it, right? That's what I do. But I think it's worth stopping to pause for a moment and praise God that Grace Toronto is becoming a community and is a community that seeks to love our poor neighbor. And as such, God calls us blessed. Now, some of you may be sitting here wondering, okay, but what are some like specific ways I can take action to love my poor neighbor? Because this is all kind of general. Well, I think God in his wisdom gives us very general proverbs because he knows that loving our poor neighbor will look different for each of us in this room. It'll look different for us depending upon the stage of life that you're in. You know, are you a student? Are you a single young working professional? Are you married and have a couple of young kids? Are you established in your career? Are you a senior, an empty nester? It's going to look different depending upon your stage of life. Loving our neighbor is also going to look different based on our interests, skills, and passions. God often calls us according to those things. And so you don't need to sit in the pew thinking about someone in the pew across from you and thinking, I need to love the neighbor, my poor neighbor the way that they do, because that's just not true. God calls us each to do it differently. But the fact is that the Bible calls each and every one of us to consider at this stage of life, given my passions and interests, how am I to love the dispossessed, the victimized, and the frail? And so I will give a, a couple of practical ideas just to get your minds going, but I'm sure you're going to have better ones than me. So here's just a few. The first, consider your giving. Are you giving? And if you're giving, are any of your funds directed towards the dispossessed, the victimized, the frail? A number of years ago, my wife Erica and I realized that almost all of our giving was directed towards evangelistic ministries. Now, that's one of our passions. I, I think it's a great thing to give towards. But we realized there was a bit of an imbalance there. And so one of the things that we felt called to do was to um, begin giving to Compassion Canada to get a compassion child. It might be something you consider. There's also, I know for many of us um, in, this, in this church community, we're passionate about vaccines. Well, a lot of countries in the developing world cannot afford vaccines. And so UNICEF has a program right now where you can donate $25, gets a vaccine sent to the third world, and the government is matching right now. It might be something that you consider. In addition to giving, we might pray. Are the biblically poor a group that we pray for typically? 
Have we ever prayed that God would bring a neighbor into our life that we can show love towards? We might pray. We might serve as well. Uh, we've been talking recently about the, uh, the deacons at the church, the diaconate. And um, I've been told that there are many amazing women deacons in our church. Many amazing women deacons and far too few male deacons. So, dudes, become a deacon. <laughs> we also have a number of partner ministries. Uh, Christina prayed for them today. And uh, one that I might draw your attention to is a new ministry that we're partnering with called New Life Ministries. It's a really cool ministry where you have the chance to uh, do written correspondence with inmates in different penitentiaries across Canada to do Bible study curriculum. It's, uh, it's anonymous, it's a safe thing to do, and you get training on how to do it. So if you're a person that has time and some interest, that could be a great ministry to investigate. And there are many more. Now let's turn to look at our final proverb for today. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the poor honors him, honors his maker. At the beginning of the sermon, I talked about um, the fact that one of the fruit which indicates the health or the lack of health of our faith is our love for our poor neighbor. And this proverb makes that very explicit, right? He who oppresses the poor insults his maker, but he who is generous to the poor honors him. I think it's a really interesting choice of words, isn't it? That God is insulted when the poor are oppressed. It doesn't say that God is angered or roused or any other list of words that might be used. God is insulted when the poor are oppressed. And I think that's because God so closely identifies, so closely identifies with the dispossessed, the victimized, and the frail, and the frail that when they are oppressed, he feels personally affronted. I'm going to invite Tark to come up. So Tark, you can get ready. Um, there's a verse from Matthew 25 in the New Testament where Jesus makes it explicit just how closely he identifies himself with the biblical poor. It's a bit of a longer quotation, and I have trouble um, reading. And so Tark has kindly agreed to help me out by reading these words of Jesus about how he so closely identifies with the poor. Okay, this is from Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, 
Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And the Thanks. Oh, did I cut you off, Tark? Yeah, there's one more line. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you, Tarek. And don't go away because I have one more short quote for you. Um, Mother Teresa took the words that Tarek just read for us, she took them very seriously and allowed those words to shape and color her entire outlook and ministry. And I think she has such a profound quote that I didn't want to get it wrong. So Tarek, if you would read that quote from Mother Teresa, please. She famously said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. Thank you, Tarek. When we are generous towards the dispossessed, the victimized, the frail, we are generous towards Jesus Christ. When we dislike, despise, or oppress the victimized, the dispossessed, and the frail, we do those things to Jesus also. Jesus so closely identifies with the poor that he actually became one of them. There's a passage from uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, uh, through his poverty, you might become rich. We've been reading these Proverbs primarily with the understanding that they're speaking to us as sort of the rich neighbor and how we ought to interact with our poor and needy neighbor. But I want to close because there's another important lens that we need to interpret this passage through. And that's the fact that Jesus is our rich, generous neighbor. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king of heaven, enthroned at the right hand of God. Jesus is the word of God by whom all of creation was spoken into existence. You can think of all the riches of earth. They are rightfully his. Every piece of gold and silver, every diamond... Jesus is the one whom every emperor, monarch, prime minister, president will ultimately bow. And yet Jesus left his throne and his riches. He was born to a single mother, a single teenage mother, surrounded by livestock. He grew up in a blue-collar profession working as a carpenter's apprentice. And when he entered ministry, he had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a penny to his name. He was victimized, beaten, given a false trial, 
and crucified as a common criminal. And he did all these things for you and for me, his poor neighbor. Jesus is the true and better, rich, generous neighbor who poured out his life for the sake of us, the poor and needy. And he invites us to go and do likewise. Amen. We now have um, a few moments here to do a bit of uh, Q&A, if you'd like to interact with the sermon or anything you've heard this morning. And um, so, Tarek, do you have the phone? Yeah. Tarek has the phone. Tarek is going to help me um, if there are any questions. I'll give you a heads up. I'm famously bad at Q&A. So (laughs) I I might just tell you to email Dan. That's D-A-N at (laughs) gracetoronto.ca. Well, you have some questions here, Graham. So um, why don't we go through this? It says, uh, does the Bible endorse an economic system of wealth redistribution? Can you repeat it, Tarek? Does the Bible endorse an economic system of wealth redistribution? Ah, good question. Um, Okay, so the laws of ancient Israel, um, I wouldn't wouldn't call it wealth redistribution, um, maybe in a modernist sense, but in an ancient sense, it is clear that landowners were not going to make a maximum yield and that... Um, the leftover crops that they had would be for the use of the poor and dispossessed. So there was at least a bit of a transfer of um, material goods. Um, in the New Testament church, we see that the church voluntarily shared things in common, and those were, those were voluntary commitments. So there was a bit of a change between the Old Testament, where the laws of God were codified, and the New Testament, which was a voluntary association. So that's what I'll say on that one. Okay. Uh, Graham, you talked about giving. Would it be okay to give directly to the church general fund because we do not know how to adequately give to the correct place? Should we do more? I think giving... um, Tark, can you give directly to the diaconate? Is that a thing you can... Yes. Okay. So I think if you don't know where to start, um, you can indicate in your giving you'd like to direct it towards the diaconate. And I actually wanted to have some stories from the diaconate shared today about how those funds are being used to bless our neighborhood. But um, the fact is those stories are confidential. So I approached them and said, can we share some awesome stories? And they said, no, they're all private. So, <laughs> uh, but if you want to do good work uh, in this neighborhood around us and for folks that have come to our church, the diaconate has touched the lives of, um, I think, uh, yeah, a, a very large number of folks that are in need in this community. That's a great way to start. Um, what else you got for me, Tarek? Okay. Take one or two more. <laughs> okay. Uh, should we distinguish between the poor, frail, and disabled within our church communities compared to those outside? Should greater emphasis be taken to support our Christian poor neighbor? Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, two, two comments on that. Um, in the New Testament, the question was posed to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. And Jesus kind of flipped the question on its head. And he said, the question isn't who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor to anyone? So Jesus did make it quite clear that our concern for the poor um, and the marginalized, um, it can be for anyone. At the same time, the New Testament does make it clear that we have a particular responsibility first to the household of faith. And so uh, that would mean that if there are church members who are struggling, um, they they would receive some priority treatment from the diaconate. 
while at the same time we want to extend love outside the walls of the church as well. So I th- it's a both end, I would say. Okay. We have time for one more, Tark. Okay. Uh, Graham, does disposition p- position poor include the Palestinians who are forcefully resettled? If so, what do, you, do we say to our Christian brothers who support the current Israeli government that oppresses their Palestinian neighbors uh, using protecting the Holy Land as the reason? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tarek is saying I should have stopped after the last one. Um, yeah, I should have wrapped up after the last one. Um, okay. I think that Christians have a, a really dark history of anti-Semitism that goes back really far. This is, this is a bit beyond the scope of my sermon today, but I was reading a book uh, called The Apostolic Faith uh, by David Yego, and he was talking about the relationship between the church and um, the Jewish people. And he said, how should the church relate today to the Jewish people? David Yego says we need to own a great deal of sin in our past, that the church has been one of the leading anti-Semitic voices throughout history, and that's to our great shame. And so as a result, we need to be a people that listen and love a lot more. I don't know if I can comment with any insight into the specifics of that situation, but I think I can say, biblically speaking, we need to be a people who are slow to speak and quick to listen and quick to show love. That answer will likely not satisfy you. I'm I'm sorry if it doesn't. You can feel free to email me for further comment. So at this point, um, I'm going to wrap up. Tarek, do you, do you have some words of reflection or yeah, what happens I'll, now? I'll, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Tarek. Hey, man. Thanks, Graham. Okay. Thanks for, thanks for engaging with us. If you have questions that you'd like Graham to address um, and, and we didn't get to it on the phone, please do email him instead. I think that'll be uh, easier for him to process and engage with you. But we're going to move ahead now to our reflection. Uh, As we've heard from God's word, let's take a moment now to reflect on what he's been saying to us. Would you join me in praying our prayer of reflection? Blessed are those who are generous to the needy. Almighty God, you have pity on the lowly and the poor. You preserve the lives of the needy. Gracious Father, therefore instruct us according to your will and teach us your wisdom so that we walk in the way of justice and truth. Conform us to the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we may perform every good work you have prepared for us in advance. Amen. Please enjoy the song of reflection.